Welcome, welcome, curious souls, to the Macabre Emporium, your sanctuary for the unusual, the mysterious, and the appalling. Step through our cryptic doorway into a world where secrets whisper and enigmas come to life. I'm David. And I'm Sarah. Together, we're your custodians of the macabre, guiding you through tales that defy the ordinary. Discover the untold stories, from lesser-known cases of true crime to the bizarre events that captivate us. Join us on a journey to the shadows where the mainstream fades and the extraordinary beckons. So whether you seek the bizarre, the eerie, or the chillingly obscure, you're in for a treat here at Macabre Emporium. Welcome to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 56. And if this is your first time joining us, because you found us in a dark corner of the internet, we're knocking over bottles. Welcome. Welcome. So if you came and joined us out on Twitch for the last couple of weeks or whatever, I really hope you enjoyed it. We enjoy seeing you guys doing that, coming and participating. We did try doing the Jackbox Party games on Thursday instead of me doing a regular solo game because the original plan went the hell. Yeah. It's supposed to be Noodle and I playing Overcooked for 73rd birthday, and we couldn't get it to work, and then we just kind of went on the fly because nothing was working for Noodle on her end, and then somebody had mentioned about Jack's Box Party Games, so I installed one that I had, gave it a shot, that I temporarily purchased one because then they told me there's a subscription where I can get all of them, so who knows, maybe once a month. Every other week, we might just do Jackbox Party Pack on the stream so everybody can participate. Yeah. So, we'll figure that out. So, if we happen to sound a little bit different, we ended up getting some new microphones. And we had some other new upgrade stuff coming along the way. So, hopefully, when we get that rest of stuff and I figure out all the ins and outs with that, we will sound a whole lot better, more professional, I guess you could say. <laughs> Just by sound. <laughs> Professional idiots. <laughs> Not by content. Right. So what do you have for us this week, Sarah? Uh, I'm going against what I normally do. Oh, yeah. But I'm doing history. What? But it's like weird-ish history. Like, who are you and why are you stealing my bit? Uh, me. What do you got? <laughs> I got your crime. <laughs> why are, who are you and why are you stealing my bit? Because you stole mine. You didn't know that, though. Yes, I did. Uh -uh. It was a look on your face like, I stole your part and you don't even know it yet. Uh. So no hints, no nothing? Nope. Okay. So on this day, February 28th, Italian-American race car driver Mario Andretti was born in Montana, Italy in 1940. Mario Andretti is one of only three drivers to win races in Formula One, IndyCar, World Sports Championship, and NASCAR. In 1983, the series finale of MASH airs on CBS in a two-hour special directed by actor Alan Alda, and who also starred in this show is Dr. Benjamin Franklin Hawkeye Pierce. The final episode still holds a record of 125 million viewers today. The siege of the Branch Davidian compound started in Waco, Texas in 1993 after the FBI attempted to raid the compound, leaving 82 men, women, and children dead along with four ATF agents. RQ-4 Global Hawk, the first unmanned aerial vehicle, is certified to fly its own flight pass and as regularly flies over the United States, Flies over United States civilian airspace. The Global Hawk is used for surveillance and reconnaissance by the United States Air Force, NASA, and NATO. Bamboo Harvester, better known as Mr. Ed the Talking Horse, dies in 1970 from a variety of age-related age ailments at either the age of 20 or 21 years old. Mr. Ed. Yep, Mr. Ed. Oh. So, you ready to get started? I am. All right, let's get going then. 
When someone you love passes away, you're distraught, you're grieving, and the last thing you really want to do is talk to a funeral home about making the proper preparations for sending your loved one off into the afterlife. Thankfully, the funeral homes come equipped with people to help you every step of the way to make it as easy on you as they can. They take on caring for your loved one's body. They do everything they can to make your loved one look amazing for their showing if they're having, you know, an open casket. They help you with choosing the right casket, the perfect flowers, the most heart-rending song. It really does take a lot off your plate while you're currently having the worst time of your life. But what if things weren't always that easy? We're going to hop in the hearse and travel back to the very, very early Victorian era all throughout Europe. Okay. Do you have any idea what I'm going to talk about yet? Something about death. (laughs) Maybe. Back in these times, a funeral and the preparation of a deceased loved one was most definitely something you you didn't get outside help for, outside of maybe a family member or two. Right. There were no funeral homes, anybody to do all of the prep for you. So it was very do-it-yourself, basically. You cleaned and cared for the body. You dressed the body. You hauled them up and out of your front door with the help of others because you surely couldn't do it by yourself. Not for very long or very far. That's for sure. Right. Now, if I said corpse road to you, what would you think? Body, a road made out of bodies. <laughs> That's, yeah. What I thought of before I dug into this was road full of rotting bodies. Right. Uh, just like bones laid around from previous bodies that had already decayed. But you'd be wrong. Or shall I say dead wrong? Right. But like when you say corpse road and I say a road made out of bodies, my first thought was that section of I-69 South coming back from your families. Uh-huh. Where everybody drives in the left-hand lane because the right-hand lane fucking sucks. Yeah. Because it's like... You can feel it. Yeah. That's like my thought how this road actually probably ride. I think it would be worse, honestly, because you you know they didn't have cars back then. Right. So it would be a combination of that plus how in Ace Ventura where he's pretending to be on an off <laughs> yeah. bad road. Yeah. Yeah, it would not be not be a good time. So it would be a combination of the right-hand lane and the southbound lane plus the overdramatics of the... Ace Ventura? Yes. Oh, God. That's... No, thank you. There are many names synonymous with corpse roads, such as buyer roads... Lich Roads, Coffin Road, Burial burial Road, and Churchway. And Lich literally means, like, corpse. Okay. Like World of Warcraft, Return of the Lich King. Didn't play World of Warcraft, remember? Oh, that's right. Well, he was dead. They were all the same thing, just different names for different locations. But essentially, they are non-traditional routes that were used to move deceased people from their homes that were usually... From, like, isolated communities. But essentially, they're non-traditional routes that were used to move deceased people from their homes that were usually from isolated communities into the cemetery, or what they call churchyard, uh, that they were to be laid to rest in. These roads were usually very tumultuous and over uneven land. Some went through the water. Some went through the mud. There were just really unpleasant conditions that you'd have to walk through for a long time. They were left clear of any construction of any kind, no buildings or anything would be built on the path of the corpse roads. In fact, nothing was ever built semi-near them either. So the wildlife took over, vegetation grew in abundance, and that added to the rough terrain. As you imagine, everything's out there just free-growing. Right. You know, no real upkeep on that. So that's when the Esfantara comes 
comes into play basically <laughs> at that point now. It's all the overgrowth. Pretty much. Like, I personally can only imagine that there was a lot of, like, ankle twisting and tripping and falling. Not right. to mention that some of the shorter corpse roads were as long as five or six miles. And the longest ones were up to 16 miles. And you're walking this, like, you're walking the entire thing. Okay. Holding the coffin or the corpse. Like, that's a long fucking way. While I said there were no buildings or anything nearby, there were spots that came into play for the people that were carrying the coffin or the body. And they were large flat stones that were stacked together, like, on top of each other. Yeah. To make, like, basically a pit stop. These would come to be known as coffin stones. They were used as basically just temporary resting places for the coffin or the body. So that whoever was doing the carrying could set them down and take a break. Okay. You couldn't put the body or the coffin on the ground because if you did, it will it would allow the spirit to wander off, which is why they had him up high. And then you get a clumsy ghost that tried to escape and fell and broke his neck again. I mean, the roads would have it that way. Families, if they were the ones that were traveling that far, they would usually say a prayer while the coffin or body was resting every time they had to stop. So these were... It wasn't just one spot, like they were all over right. the road. They most often went straight out of the village when they were transporting because no one wanted to see the dead body or the coffin, you know, bad image, I guess. Their roads were out of view of the public for the most part, and they went far out of their way to avoid being publicly seen, basically. The term corpse road or any variation of it came about when there was a spike in the population, which forced many people to have to move farther and farther away from their ministers and their mother churches. Do you know what a mother church is? No. I didn't either. I had to look it up. So mother churches were like the OG churches. These were the ones that were first. They were the biggest ones. And they were the only ones that had churchyards. So like... Okay, so I was kind of guessing some similar to that being, like, the biggest one out of all of them. Yeah, so the biggest one, and they were the only ones that had churchyards, which, cemetery. Right. On the grounds. Technically graveyard. Whatever. <laughs> and the most important bit was that they were the only ones with the legal right to bury people. I know you think you're you're super cute doing that, huh? Because she forgot about the cemetery and graveyard's origin episode, apparently. I guess so. <laughs> so if someone that had been pushed back far away from the church died, they had no choice but to carry their loved one to the closest mother church, since they were the only ones that could bury them, which meant they had a long ways to travel. Right. Even if the church had, even if they had a church closer to them, they were not allowed to take their dead there as they weren't allowed to be buried in the churchyard or a normal church. It had to be the OG churchyard or nothing, because being able to monopolize the market meant big money. Yep. So that's why they left it that way. Most of the people that lived back then were poor and didn't have a horse and a cart to help them haul their beloved's body. So the body would be carried, literally carried, like, like I said, coffin or the body wrapped in, you know, a sheet, something right. to transport them. The group that usually did the carrying consisted of eight men that worked in groups of four. So they would carry or drag, depending on 
you know, how strong they were, I guess. Well, that doesn't make any sense because it said that the coffee couldn't hit the ground or whatever, but they have these resting spots that yeah. keep it from, like, the soul from escaping. Well, you have to imagine if the family's too poor and they can't pay for these men to come and right. help. If it's just women left in the family, they're not going to be able to haul, like, hold up and carry that body. Right. So they would carry or drag, like I said, the body for however long they could, and then they would stop and the other four would take over helping move the body further. Sometimes the family members would help also, but not as the main people. They would stand like in between the Mm -hmm. men that were actually carrying it and just kind of hold it. So they were, in their eyes, they were helping, but they weren't really helping. Right. Sometimes there was very little family that could even help or attend because back then you absolutely had to work. Like death wouldn't stop you from having to work, especially if you were poor. What little money you did generate through work, like you couldn't miss it. Usually, though, they took the corpse roads while the family went a more traditional and direct route so that they didn't have to struggle like those actually carrying the body. Some say that the path of a corpse road was a straight line shot from the village to the mother church because they believed that spirits could only travel in a line. So they would travel that straight line to make sure that the spirit could move with their body the entire way to the churchyard for burial. Once the body actually made it to the churchyard, they would stop before a gate, or as they called it, a lich gate. Like I said before, lich meaning corpse, so corpse gate. Most of these gates were built after 1550. If the family and body reached the gate prior to the minister or priest being there, they had to wait until he showed up. They couldn't go through. This is why almost all of the pictures you see of lich gates have a roof overhead in case of, like, you know, bad weather, it's raining. But, like, if they get there before them, and they've been walking this whole time, they've been walking in that rain for who knows how long, you know what I mean? Right. So what is that little, what is that little roof going to protect them from that they haven't already walked miles in? Well, now they don't have to wait in the rain. I mean, I guess, yes, they're already soaked and everything, but... You know, a little bit of comfort, like, actually getting out of the rain at that point. Eh, true, I suppose. At any rate, most of the gates had a coffin stone to set the coffin on while you waited on the priest to arrive so that you didn't have to hold it the entire time. Because remember, you can't put it on the ground. But yeah, you can drag it and that's okay. I mean, (laughs) if you had to do what you had to do, I guess. I don't know. I didn't live back then. So in clearance bin number two, I went over corpse candles. Do you remember that? Yeah. Okay. So they were lights that appeared outside of someone's house that was about to die. Basically, harbingers of death. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to go over that entire thing again. If you want to want this to make more sense, I guess, go back and listen to clearance bin number two. But in Wales, where corpse candles seemingly originated in, they could be seen lurking along corpse roads between the churchyard and the home of the person that was about to die until the person actually did die. Then they would make their way to the churchyard and stay lit right above where the deceased person was to be interred. So, you think there's ghost stories that come from no, these not roads? No, there's absolutely none. <laughs> there's tons of them. There's absolutely zero with all yeah. radon leaks and shit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, there's ghost stories. There's one in particular that is more famous than the rest. It states that a family made the mistake of strapping their coffin strapping the coffin of their deceased son on horseback. They were on their way to the mother church on a particularly foggy and eerie day, and a noise spooked the horse, and the horse took off with the body in the coffin still strapped to its back. A long search ensued, and needless to say, the horse and the car... The horse... 
the horse, the corpse, and the coffin were never... That was really fucking hard to say. (laughs) The horse, the corpse, and the coffin? The horse, the corpse, and the coffin were never found. It's said that the mother was so distraught because of what had happened to her son after he died that she herself collapsed and died. And she is said to still haunt that particular corpse road that this ghost story came from. With all that said, the little history on that, corpse roads are still visible today if you look for them. There are some in San Francisco, apparently, that are still visible. Not used for anything, but just off, like, in the natural landscape. Some areas actually have signs up that literally point in the direction of them. They've become dark tourist hotspots, imagine that. A lot of people use them now as walking trails, which I don't know if I'd want to do that. Because, you know, they nothing's changed to them. Right. So the terrain is going to be just as bad as it used to be, if not worse. So how would it be just as bad as walking an actual hiking trail if the terrain's just as bad, probably? Hiking trails are usually, like, flattened. True. But this is just straight up natural landscape. It's unmaintained hiking trails a lot right. at this point. Well, I know for my ungraceful ass, it would not be a good thing for me to do. But anyways, some travel to them at night and tell ghost stories. Some still go out and look for the elusive corpse candles, while others go just for the peace and quiet, because they're not traveled that often. But even now, if you're in the UK area and you see one of these trails, like the locals will tell you, don't go in them after dark. Don't know why. Would... You walk on one of those historic corpse trails. You already know the answer to this. Yes, I know. What about the people listening? Would you be up for walking on the corpse roads? I know I just called it a trail. It's not a trail. It's a fucking road. Probably because I threw a trail at you and that's what you got in your mind. Probably. Thanks for fucking that up for me. (laughs) But yeah, that was... You're going to ask me if I'd walk one of these after, you know, we've already been to a haunted location and whatnot, and I just bought a box full of goodies. Well, fuck yeah, I'm going. See yeah. you, bye. Even if the locals told you, don't, don't go. Well, maybe not so much. Like, is there one I can go on after dark? Mm, fair enough. But if there's, it would be weird that they're like, yeah, you can't go on them, on any of them at night, except for this one, because this one's okay. I don't think that would be... Unless they're saying don't go on them at night, it's because of local law that they're closed down because of how dangerous they potentially could be. This wasn't in a law aspect. I understand that, but, you know, it could not even be posted because not all cemeteries are posted to close after dusk, like most of them do. True that. And they could be just like, hey, just don't get caught, you know, go out there after dark because it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And not from a supernatural aspect. Not from a spooky duke aspect? No. Anyways, Anyways, what do you have? I have true crime, like I said. So yeah, I thought it was time to do some mass murder again because, you, you know, you do serial killers and other cases. I usually handle the mass murders that go on. Yeah. So I thought it was time for that again because I was looking at my episode list. I've only done three, well now four, cases of true crime. You did Tony Caritza's. Well, and that wasn't, that doesn't count. Yeah, technically it does. So you did San Ysidro. Yep. Bath Township. Yep. What was the third? Tony Caritzas. And now this. But Tony Caritzas didn't kill anybody. Right. But he brought nationwide change to the insanity play. Well, you said mass murders. So oh. this would be three. Mass murders slash true crime. 
But yes, Tony Curtis was a true crime case. Yeah, because, I know that. Because he brought nationwide change. I thought you were talking specifically no. mass murder. No, this will be the third mass murder case, right. but my fourth altogether true crime Correct. case. So have you ever heard of the name Ronald Gene Simmons? You have said the name to me before, okay. but I don't remember if you even told me anything about him. It might have just been, hey, have you heard of blah, blah, blah? Right. Because I don't, I don't know anything about right, him yeah. or his this, story. This guy's kind of icky. Ugh. Icky in comparison to like what? I don't know yet. Okay. Compared to what we've done, I can't really compare it to anything yet. <laughs> okay. So It's a whole new breed of ick. Yeah, kind of. We'll say that. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Ronald Gene Simmons was born in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta and William Simmons on July 15th, 1940. His father died when he was only two years old on January 31st, 1943. His mother would then remarry that same year to William D. Griffin, a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They would then move to Little Rock, Arkansas, after his now stepfather's reassignment in the, the Corps of Army Engineers, and they would do this several more times across the state of Arkansas. And that's all I could find out about his childhood, other than he dropped out at the age of 17. I couldn't find anything about siblings, anything, how he was treated by his parents growing up or anything like there's nothing I could find. That sucks when you can't find, because there's little things in their history that could have happened to them. Right. And you're like, okay, so maybe that's why. But not having that piece, you, yep. you never really know. So, like I said, the only other thing I could find out is he dropped out of school at the age of 17, and that's when he would decide to join the Navy in 1957 and would be stationed in the state of Washington at Naval Station Bermonton as a clerk while he was now which has now been consolidated with another base, which I forgot to put in there. Right. It's not really important. No. But if I don't even like, no, that's not what it's called now. But anyway. <laughs> that's what it was called when he was in it. Right. So that's the, anyway. pro the important part. While stationed here, he would meet his soon-to-be wife, Barbara say Rebecca Becky Yulabari. What? Yeah. Say it again. Just, Barsabay, I think is how it was pronounced. I forgot to look up a pronunciation. But for this episode, I will refer to her either as Rebecca or Becky. Okay. Say the whole name again. Burbisay, Rebecca, quotations, Becky, Yulabari. What a name. Yeah, there's a lot of three-named people in this. <laughs> so Ronald and Becky would end up meeting it. At a USO dance, and they would soon go on to get married in New Mexico in 1960 on July 9th. Over the next 18 years, they would go on and have seven children together. Damn. Simmons would then leave the Navy in 1963 and then join the United States Air Force approximately two years later, where he would do various clerical and administrative duties. So he was, his entire military career was, you know, administrative office stuff. In an office, yeah. He would... And this is where it gets weird because of his merits that he earned in the military. Mm -hmm. Because I had Kevin from the dog show. Okay, so I better say Dark Windows Podcast before he gets mad because I didn't put any respect on his name like he did on our live stream. Not respect. Respect. Res oh. Put some respect on my name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked, he does a lot of military stuff for their badass episodes. Mm -hmm. So I figured he'd have better resources on finding stuff like... We couldn't find anything on this fucking dude. Really? I just happened to find it in an archived article of what he did in the military. But so him being in clerical stuff and whatnot, his awards and merits doesn't really make sense because usually they're earned in combat. 
But anyhow, he would be awarded a Bronze Star, an Air Force Ribbon for excellent marksmanship. That would come with boot camp, basically. Mm -hmm. And the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross while serving in Vietnam in 1967 and 1968. So the Bronze Star is usually awarded for combat-related duties, if I remember correctly. So unless... But, like, was he always just doing clerical, or was he on the field before he did clerical? they They all go through boot camp for, you know, obvious reasons. Right. But like Kevin was telling me, most of the time when he tries to look up anybody that has a military career that's in a true crime case, yeah. their crimes actually overshadow anything they did in the military career, so you're never going to actually find a whole lot. Ah, gotcha. So Ronald Gene Simmons would retire from the Air Force in 1979 at the rank of Master Sergeant. On April 3rd, 1981, Simmons would find himself under investigation by the Department of Human Services of Cloudcroft, New Mexico, where he and his family lived after his daughter Sheila at 17 at the time. And this is where it gets super icky. This is where Sheila tells the school nurse Carol Nix that she was carrying her father's child. Oh. She would go on to have this child, and it would be be raised as one of his own children. Simmons would also be violently abusive towards his wife Becky. So in a fear of this arrest for abusing his daughter, he would flee him and his entire family back to Arkansas. First, they would make a home in Warren, Arkansas, in Lenoke County, and then they would move to Pope County in 1983. Here, they would live on 13 acres, about six and a half miles north of Dover, Arkansas. And the land that they lived on, he dubbed it Mockingbird Hill. And this is where they would make their home, and Simmons felt more at ease here. They would take two single-wide trailers to make somewhat of what we know as a double-wide trailer, basically, uh-huh. because I don't think in the early 80s there was double-wides, or they were just new and probably just popping up you think i know with the market in our area which none of which this makeshift double wide trailer didn't have a telephone or running indoor plumbing and with no indoor plumbing that's working he would order his children to dig cesspits for them to use and would build a privacy fence and in some sections were 10 feet high this fence would be made from cinder blocks topped with barbed wire which would also make it easier to keep his family in and the outside and the outside rolled out to keep his secret getting out into arkansas he literally had his shit, or his kids. <laughs> dig a shit pit, yep. Dig holes to shit in. Yep. Okay. Their neighbors said that he was rel- he was a relentless taskmaker. They would say he would push his family to work the property by moving rocks, dirt, branches. These kids would never speak to them and were constantly working, according to Julie Huffning, who lived across the street from, from the Simmons family. She would also say he would keep a watchful eye on them. He would stare at them from a nearby car as they waited for the bus and then would follow their school bus as it went into town. Well, like with the secret he's hiding, he's probably freaking that one of them. I was probably going to flee or if he's abusing the other children, which people speculated, couldn't find any definitive answer on that. Mm-hmm. It was probably watching to see if they were one of them would try and run away or and spill the beans like the one family out in California a couple of years ago. About 14 kids or something. One of them, the, like, the oldest, escaped and called 911. Oh, the story I did? No, not that one. Oh. This is a story we haven't covered. This was recently within the last five years, but anyway. Uh, I don't know. Summer Mooney, Loretta Simmons' best friend, said that she would go there and spend the night at times with Loretta. And her father would keep to himself isolated, would only come out of his room sometimes to issue orders to the family, and more than likely was drunk all the time as he smelled like beer when she would see him and said that he found Ronald, quote-unquote, spooky and not in a good way like we are. Uh-huh. He and Ronald Simmons ended up working several low-paying jobs in Russellville, Arkansas. He worked at the Woodline 
motor freight as an accounts receivable clerk and quit his job after numerous reports of sexual advances on coworkers. <sighs> he would then work at a Sinclair Mini Mart, which I'm assuming this is a gas station mm-hmm. type from the Sinclair Motor Oil Company at the time, the one with the big green dinosaur on mm-hmm. the roof. And he would work here for a year before quitting on December 18th, 1987. So by this time, Sylvia, one of the two oldest children, has moved out on her own and she would take her daughter that she had with her father, Sylvia, with her in hopes to give her a better life after she marries Dennis McNulty. But on December 22nd, 1987, where most families are get, are getting their last minute Christmas gifts, are getting their last minute Christmas shopping done, going out to see Christmas lights, and children are having parties at schools just before a long holiday break, Ronald Gene Simmons almost looking like Santa Claus and himself looking like Santa Claus himself becoming more sinister Krampus and decide to kill his entire family. Oof. On this morning, he would load a twenty two revolver, grab a hammer, and then first shoot his wife, forty six year old Becky Simmons, and then his oldest son, twenty six year old Ronald Gene Simmons Junior, and beat them to death with a hammer. Jesus. Because a twenty two round, if I know you've never seen them, I have. They're not very big. It's gonna take multiple shots to kill somebody with a twenty two. So he shot him just to wound him, and then killed him with the hammer. For the most part, what it sounds like, because the details of this case are very obscure. So I have to go off by what was reconstructed by what the police thought happened. Okay. He would then strangle his three year old granddaughter Barbara and Barbara, and then dump the three of their bodies into one of the cesspits he had forced his children to dig years ago. And then he would wait for his other children to come home from school from Christmas break. Here, he would then tell 17-year-old Loretta, 14-year-old Eddie, and 11-year-old Marianne Simmons that he wanted to give them their Christmas presents, but wanted to do it one at a time was the only, you know, stipulation he had with this. Yeah, it's not fucking weird. Well, with their excitement with early Christmas gifts, it made it more easier for him to go on and strangle each one of them individually and then drown them in a rain barrel. This is the first time I've ever seen Sarah's face like this, even after some dark American history we did earlier this month. Like, uh, yeah. can continue. Then he proceeded to dump their bodies into the same cesspits he put the other family members in after they died. So Christmas would then come and go, where Ronald would sit and drink alone as if nothing happened. He would then invite the remaining family members to come visit for the holidays. December 26th, his son... Billy, 22 years old at the time, and his wife, Renetta, that was 21, arrived first, and Ronald shot and killed both of them with another 20, with the same 22 revolver he killed the first family members with. And then would go on to strangle their one-year-old son, Trey, and drown him as well. Salem is not pleased by this story. Sheila and her family would arrive next, not knowing what her father has done to the rest of the family. Ronald would then go on to shoot 24-year-old Sheila, 33-year-old husband Dennis. Simmons would then again strangle 7-year-old Sylvia and 1-year-old Michael. He wouldn't dump their bodies and the older brother's bodies in the cesspools like he did the others, but he would cover their bodies with their coats and place them in neat rows inside the house. Except for Sheila's, he would place Sheila's body under Becky's best tablecloth, under the Christmas tree, even though some of the crime scene photos that I said, the one, well, the one that comes up with an overall shot of the room where the Christmas tree is, she's like more in front of it, not underneath it. Gotcha. But a lot of the sources said it was under. Michael and Trey would be found by police later unwrapped in plastic sheeting and left in abandoned cars on the property. After the murders, he would then go to Sears in Russellville to pick up the presents he had ordered for his family for his family that he had just murdered. 
the fuck? I don't know. Keeping up appearance was maybe? I oh, guess. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't fuck Even man. though he's already had this reputation of being outstanding to the community already as it is. So, mm. like the night, and just like the nights before, he would sit at home drinking beer and watching television as if nothing happened. Well, he has the dead bodies of his family in yep. the house. On December 28th, Simmons would go to Walmart in Russellville and purchase a second 22 revolver to continue his trail of death. He would then go to a law firm where 24-year-old Kathy Kendrick was working as a secretary and Simmons was and Simmons was infatuated with her, but she interjected him multiple times. Well, no shit, she's like 20, 24. 24, he's in his 40s at this point. So he would then shoot and kill Kathy Kendrick in the chest. He would then next go to an oil company owned by Russell Taylor, which also owned the mini mart where he had worked. He would shoot Taylor after killing 33-year-old James David Chaffin, an employee of Taylor's, but Russell Taylor would survive being shot. He also shot at another employee, but he missed his target. They speculate that the ones that did get shot were trying to intervene, seeing that he was brandishing a firearm. Like I said, there's a lot of details that are obscure that I couldn't really find on. Yeah. He then drove to the mini mart where he did work, shooting and wounding two more people and his final target, which was his former supervisor, Joyce Butts. He would shoot twice and she would then and she would survive. Vicky Jackson, an employee at the trucking company, watched all this unfold in front of her in the office and during her testimony she said that it was she thought it was a prank at first firing blanks because he stopped and looked at the Christmas tree in the office and he could see that he was talking to Joyce and then pulled the gun out and shot twice and then realizing at that point this is a real deal shooting going on. I don't know why you would think that was a prank. Who knows? What a fucking weirdo. So with after her finally realizing this, she would cry out to Gene, please don't shoot me multiple times over and he'd would say to her, Vicky, I'm not going to shoot you. I want to turn myself in. In a matter of 40 minutes that this all happened, the police would finally show up. They were probably already going, bouncing from one location to another. And then this call comes in that the shooter's here. Maybe yeah. My assumption of what happened along the timelines. So he would turn himself into the police. And when they would arrive, Gene Simmons would peacefully surrender him and himself and his guns and tell the police, I got everyone that hurt me. How did his family hurt him? Well, we'll get all into that. Before his trials were started, Simmons would be evaluated to see if he would be fit to stay in trial, and he was found fit to stay in trial. But to get him from the jail to the state hospital for this evaluation, they actually had to move him in secret because law enforcement was receiving death threats saying that he's not going to make it there. Once, you know, the word got out of what he did and about his family and everything... He would first be tried for the murders of Kathy Kendrick and James Chaffin, and he was found guilty on May 12, 1988 for these, and was sentenced to death. While still under oath, he supported his sentence and made the statement, I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., want it to be known that this is my wish and my, de- and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or, any, or in any way change the sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence is carried out expeditiously. He would then go on to tr- go on trial for the murder of the 14 family members where, again, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. For as they believed, the motive was was that after a family friend told investigators that Becky was saving up to file for a divorce from Ronald Gene Simmons, he would even remain mute during investigations when he was questioned by the investigators and even when he was asked during an interview with a news anchor when they asked if he would ever tell us and he would just reply, I'm not going to comment on that. Huh. 
So one of the reasons why he didn't go after the manager of the mini mart and all that is because they did get an argument over pay at that point. During his trial, he would then punch prosecutor John Bynum on the chin. When Bynum was asked how much it helped his case, he replied, Nothing except that shows what a kind of violent man we're dealing with here. It shows how fast a man can go from zero to 60. Yeah. Simmons would make this attack after Bynum would in- introduce a five-page letter as evidence that revealed he was the father of, the ch- of his daughter of Sheila's child and his anger towards Dennis, her husband. Simmons, and from the only little snippet I could find from this letter that was used, I f- decided to include it in. If you're trying to hurt me, then you should be very proud of yourself because you have done a very good job of it. As he wrote in his notes, you've destroyed me. I don't want D being Dennis to set foot on my property. He turned you against me. You want me out of your life. I'll be out of your life. I will see you in hell. Okay. The testimony would resume after a lunch recess and Simmons would be allowed to return to the courtroom, but in chains at this point after trying to attack the prosecutor. I'd hope so. They also said that he wanted to try to go after his gun, but they come to believe it was more likely it was another person trying pressing against the courtroom officer to help subdue uh-huh. Simmons basically on February 10th 1989 Simmons was found guilty again on all 14 counts of murder and sentenced to death during this time the state of Arkansas allowed death row inmates to waive their rights to an appeal and since Ronald did from his trials earlier he would be under protective custody while on death row as other inmates felt he was damaging their own chances at an appeal causing them to threaten Simmons life honestly it should be like oh no the cell door is open but I hear my mother calling me (laughs) right (laughs) but that's just me yeah but then again then that would just ruin their appeal case anyway Ronald Gene Simmons we would be put to death on June 25th 1990 after Governor Clinton signed his execution warrant in May of the same year Yes, the same Governor Clinton you covered in The Boys on the Tracks. Yeah. So the Clintons did do something good. But anyway, (laughs) Ronald Gene Simmons had chosen the form of execution being lethal injection. And for his last meal, he requested requested filet mignon, two raw onions, tomato slices, a banana, six rolls, and a 7-Up. I don't know anybody in my life now that enjoys a raw onion. Ew. Yeah. Ew. Okay. Yeah, I know. Must be a southern thing. I don't know. I don't know. So if you live in the south and live, you know, listen to us, let us know. Is that like a southern thing to eat raw onion like that? And if you do, do you guys eat it like... Do you eat it like an apple? Yeah, do you eat it like an apple (laughs) or do you like peel it off, you know, after you cut one end off or whatever? I want to know. That's that's odd. Like, I don't find somebody eating tomato slices just as random or whatever, but a raw onion is just like, what? Yeah. But anyway, so his last words were, justice delayed finally, be done as justifiable. And of course, no surviving family members even would ever claim his body, and he would be buried in a pauper's pot. No surviving family. Yeah. If I was any of the, like, extended living family, I wouldn't claim his ass either. Well, his wife had family that still lived in Colorado at one point, so... Fuck all that. They actually, I couldn't find out where in Colorado was. I could see pictures of it, but never specified where it was in Colorado. But surviving family members on her side did make a memorial. I'm guessing it's in a cemetery for the people he killed, not him. Okay. I was going to say. Yeah. The look on your face, you're like, what the fuck? And I'm like, (laughs) you need to let me finish what I'm saying first. That makes much more sense. That's why I didn't say anything. I know. So, but yeah, that's Ronald Gene Simmons and probably. I had never heard that. 
I was alive during that. All right. Oh. Yeah, this is one the one of the this has been single handedly the largest mass killing and worst mass killing in Arkansas history. Let's hope it's it, let's hope it's the last. Right. I always hope it's the last one. Jesus. That was bananas. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it was a little bit icky. <laughs> a lot of it. All right. A lot but of yeah, it. they still don't know to this day this day why, because he would never come out and say why he killed his family. My guess is would be part of the it be if I can't have you, nobody can have you mentality some people can get after But like his kids and grandkids? Right. That makes no sense. Well, you know, like they said, they heard that his Becky was wanting to divorce him because of him being abusive. Right. So there comes that. And plus, obviously, one of the other things that did come up was when family members were going through Sheila and Dennis's home, they were finding tapes of, like, To My Sweetheart on it, and they could hear Ronald sobbing in the background, and I forget what songs were on it. It was like a Willie Nelson song. And another one I can't remember off the top of my head. So clearly he was obsessed with his daughter in the same way Joseph Fritzl did, but Gross. not to the extreme of Joseph Fritzl, which Gross. unfortunately that piece of shit's still alive. Gross. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You know why he's still alive? You just told me. Well, you didn't say anything because you kept going gross. I said, yeah, gross. I was in talking about that. Yeah, he's still alive and he's trying to... Get moved into Gem Pop, which once again, oh no! If he does, bye bye, Fritzel. Yeah, it should have been a long time ago. Yeah, he should be carrying around a fucking plant too, so he stops wasting oxygen. Then again, I feel bad for the plant have to recycle all of it there he fucking breathes. Yeah, but that's it for Ronald Dean Simmons. Interesting. Yep. I'm surprised I'd never heard him. Right. So am I. Tits what are tits. Yeah. Yeah, you look more into the serial killer stuff and whatnot. Yeah. That's probably why you have it. Probably. So, before we get out of here for the day, Wednesdays and Thursdays, we're on Twitch, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Probably going to keep going on with doing co-op games on Wednesday, me on solo games on Thursday nights, starting at the same time. Join our Facebook group and just search for Macabre Pouring Podcast. That's where all show announcements, pictures that come along with the episodes are posted. If you're curious, so we do the groundwork for you to looking up these fucking weirdos so you don't have to. Correct. And of course, you know, you can see them on YouTube and Sarah does those. Yep. Obviously. But if you're listening on YouTube, it doesn't matter to you. <laughs> Correct. So. So I think it's time we close the Emporium up for the day. What do you think? I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. Okay. Don't bye. kill your family. And don't kill your family. Okay, bye. Bye. Please go and check out our website at macabemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on TikTok at Macabre Emporium Pod. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. If you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime or weird history that you would like us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabemporiumpod at gmail.com. And remember to follow, rate, review, and share whenever and wherever you can to help us grow our podcast.